Hang on, I'm calling myself. This is going to be interesting. I have to answer. <laughs> Hello? Oh, all of my debts going to get related, going to get eliminated by Veronica. That's interesting. I hadn't seen spam phone calls before that uh, the, claimed to they be... They spoofed it so it was your own phone number? Yeah, it's like, you know, I have a call from Derek's iPhone, and I was like, my, I don't, it's in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I can't block my own, I mean, I guess I could block my own phone number. Like, when would I ever call my own phone from my phone number? Seems yeah. reasonable, I guess. Wow, that was tricky. Whew. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Uh, what's going on? I wrote a lot of talk proposals. Yeah, I've written one so far. And uh, I'm going to try and write, like, I don't know, 12 more. Yours is the, the one that you've submitted is the one on um, Scenic? Yep, yep. So we'll see. It's not necessarily on Scenic. It's more about how migrations work, how, how schema dumping works, how you can extend it, what the problems with extending it are, basically. Um, trying to give people an inside view of how these things actually work is... I think that for most people, that's black magic. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool. So in the last episode, we talked about, I made a joke that software basically never works, or <laughs> it's amazing that it works at all. And we've been talking about this a little bit at ThoughtBot at like developer discussions about software quality in general. And every experience I have on projects is pretty maddening. Like when we come on to establish projects and... I feel like we have like a software quality crisis. Am I overstating things? No. Okay. So what do we do about that? People who are listening to this podcast obviously care enough to listen to a podcast about development. And yet we're all working in an industry where software quality is total crap. And it's a it's basically a joke amongst all of us that software doesn't work. And like, what are we going to do about this? Well, one of the things I find interesting has been this like movement to like eliminate the term software engineer from usage because most developers aren't software engineers, which is true. But the actual the actual origin of that term was coining it towards the beginning of um, our field becoming widespread and people coming to the realization that software didn't work very well. And that we were doing things like developing the systems that ran planes. And so the term was originally there to get to try and encourage people in the industry to hold themselves to a higher level of accountability in terms of the quality of their work. Now, this was in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And apparently, rather than us striving to make working software, we've instead been like, nope, we can't do it. Let's just not call ourselves software engineers. Right. And that's like, we don't, we, I mean, it's fair. We don't do engineering, right? Like, I feel like, I don't know, thinking about building a building or uh, constructing a building and designing a building, there are calculations you make and sometimes you get those wrong. Like there are definitely cases where calculations have been done wrong, but like they do math and they do science. We don't do very much math or much science. No, but especially if you heavily fo uh, emphasize on testing and if you, I mean, you can get closer, especially if, if you're in the functional world and you have access to tools like Quick Check where you try and write that you're, or if you're, if you're writing a, a proof in Coke, I mean, you can certainly try and prove that your software is provably correct. Right. So maybe that's one of the things. Maybe we should all just stop doing things in languages that aren't helping us write correct software. 
Like, I well, enjoy in theory, writing. You could write a proof in Coke for anything. Okay. I don't know what Coke is, other than it's a it's Coke. a programming language that lets you write uh, proofs for the correctness of of programs written in other programming languages. Hmm. Okay, we'll link that link to that in the show notes. Uh, it sounds pretty academic, but you know maybe this that's kind of what it's, I'm getting at, right? Is that like maybe we need to be more academic because I'm just getting tired of uh, doing these projects where everything is just a giant ball of mud. And, you know, granted, the projects that come to us tend to, by the time they get to us, are in tough shape a lot of times. And the projects we build from scratch, we like to think, leave the world, or enter the world in a better state than that, right? But who knows what happens to them afterwards. And really, when you're starting, when you're starting, you can lay a really good foundation, but the interesting stuff really hasn't happened to you yet, right? You haven't pivoted and changed your entire business model and now the code has to keep up or something like that right well it's also right there's there's sort of two related but ultimately independent factors of quality there's how much we like working on and maintaining the source code and how correctly the software performs its purpose and while code that is hard to maintain ultimately tends to lead to programs with more bugs while they're related they are ultimately independent yeah i guess at a very high level, like I really enjoy writing Ruby. Do I think Ruby is the best way to write correct code? No, <laughs> but it's just the thing I enjoy doing the most. So like, just because I enjoy working on it, does it doesn't make it good code, I guess is what I would say. Right. I mean, like, have you ever, have you ever seen the coding standards, um, for, uh, NASA? I have not. So they include things. I don't remember all the details Let's actually pull them up because they're they're pretty interesting and, and related to this. But one of the one of the interesting ones is like you cannot use function pointers ever. Um, and if you start looking through a lot of these, okay, so here's here's the the well we don't need to read all of these, but um, restrict all code to very simple can flow structs. Don't use uh, go to or recursion of any kind. Don't use dynamic memory allocation. A lot of these only are, are uh, valid in in C. But yeah, I. Uh, Every function must check any uh, any non-void return values in any context. And then the, the most interesting one is the the restrictions on the use of pointers. So basically, no function pointers ever, and you can never uh, invoke more than one level of dereferencing of pointers. Which ultimately, if you try and like bring that up a few uh, levels from C, means things like no in these ultimately come down to no indirection and no polymorphism. Right. Do we have evidence that the NASA way to go is the right way to go? I think that if you're writing software where it has to work exactly correctly or people die, mm-hmm. um, having as linear of a understanding of it is probably the most important thing, even if it does ultimately mean development can take exponentially longer. Sure. I mean, I, most of the software that NASA writes, at least currently, isn't supporting life, right? Like, Yeah, I'm not sure if this applies to like less important things <laughs> i mean they're super they're super expensive and they take forever to get where they're going so yeah you still want to get it right, <laughs> right. um and they don't have anybody on board to fix things but I, I guess my point being that like whether whether or not it's correct the people there who are who are literally rocket scientists have decided that the best way to achieve the maximum amount of quality in terms of the code the software performing its function correctly is to essentially go to the opposite extreme in terms of the quality of the code for maintainability. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that's that's an interesting way to look at it and possibly correct. Like one of the things one of the things I was doing as I was thinking about this stuff is I started looking at like 
what do people say is going to kill Ruby, right? Like, one of everything. the reasons everything is like that's I mean, it's like a hot thing to say, especially a few years ago. Is it like this is the next Ruby killer or whatever? Yeah. Um, but Uncle Bob Martin, I don't like calling him Uncle Bob Martin. Can I just call him Bob Martin? He's not my you uncle. Sorry, Bob. <laughs> I don't know if he, he bestowed that name out upon himself or something. I'm just really uncomfortable calling people who are not my uncle, uncle. I think he did bestow that name upon himself. Okay. Anyway, Bob Martin did this talk uh, at a RailsConf years ago, and it was basically, the theme of it is what killed Smalltalk could kill Ruby too. And that was that his feeling was that what killed Smalltalk was that it was too easy to make a mess. And perhaps it's also true that it's too easy to make a mess in Ruby. Is it harder to make a mess in other languages? Something like Haskell or something like Rust something that is strongly typed, and by that I mean not Java or C-sharp, which are typed kind of, but something that can give you some provable correctness, at least in the types that you're reasoning about in your system. I think that you can still make a mess just as easily. It's just a different uh, kind of mess. Is it a mess that's incorrect, or is it a mess that's difficult to work with? Or is it both? It's a lot harder to make a mess that's incorrect. So... Well, there's certainly cases, because one, one of the things that, uh, with really strongly typed languages is that there's a lot of cases where it's essentially impossible to write an implementation of a function that matches the type signature and does the wrong thing, assuming that you are using your types in a sufficiently expressive way. Now, of course, there's always going to be functions like add, which takes a number and, a, you know, two numbers and returns a third number. And sure, in that case, you can do just about anything and have the signature match but in a lot of cases it's actually really really difficult to match the type signature and do the wrong thing and that's part of why you also just see less unit testing occur in in stackly type languages because sometimes you'll just look at a function and be like there's absolutely no possible way that this could be incorrect and still compile like when i did that work when i added i forget what i even added like is null or something like that to diesel and it was like, okay, I'll write a high-level integration test because I need to know like what I want this code to look like. Like, what do I want the API to look like when you're calling is null or is not null? Okay, so I wrote that, and I, you know, I wrote a test case for it, not just the code. And then I ran the tests, and it it broke because the code didn't exist. And so I started writing some code, and then it wouldn't compile because you know I didn't I didn't match the type signature properly. And it was like, okay. Uh, let me make a tweak to this. And you're just kind of like tweaking it to make the compiler happy at different levels of where you're implementing this. And then once it compiled, like, of course it was going to run. Like, I had 100% confidence that once it compiled, the test was going to pass. Um, right. And this was a pretty simple example, but I feel like that's the case. Like, I feel like if I were living in one of those languages, I would write a lot of high-level tests to kind of prove out what I wanted to do. And then from that point on, like I would just rely on the compiler. The problem for me is that I haven't found that language that like, like I know Haskell can do this for me, but I just, I don't get that feeling from Haskell that I, I want to keep doing it where I do with Ruby. The little bit of Rust I've done, I do get like, yeah, I would, I would like doing something more in this language. So I'm curious to kick the tires on that a little bit. Uh, Swift, now that it's open source, who knows what's going to happen with that. Um, it has a lot of the same ideas, I feel like. Yeah. I think I think one of the big things with Ruby is that Ruby puts like initial productivity over just about everything else. Like it's really easy to just get something out and done with Ruby. And I think part <laughs> of why nothing has taken over just yet, even if it does make it harder to make a mess, is because it loses too much of that. Yeah. I mean, 
it's really easy to get something out. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess if you want it to, but do you want it to work? Do you want it to work a year from now? Do you want it to work two years from now? Well, but that's the, that's the whole startup mindset, right? Is it doesn't matter because we need to get to market in three months or we're out of business. I guess. Do I want to be doing that? No. There's a lot of existential questions this is making me ask. Well, that's, that's sort of why, like, um, I was talking to somebody about YAWF uh, the other day. And about what? Uh, yet, yet another web framework. Oh, I, have, I, have, I have a consistent naming scheme for unnamed things that I'm working on. Are you, are you actually working on the web framework part or is it just in your head? I'm actually working on it. Okay, cool. I'm excited um, about this. And we were just talking about something, something Java and like how it had been weeks of, of work. And he was just looking at this and, and being like, I could have totally just built this in Rails in like two hours. And it's just funny though, because when you, when you specifically quantify it like that, I think what I'm going for with this is the thing that you can build it in this in two and a half hours. Right. I'm okay with it taking a little longer if it's correct. That's the big thing is that is that it still ha- it has to feel like a marginal, you know, it's like it's not like you're giving up something huge and going into the Java slog. It's that you're paying a, a little bit of a price for a big win. Right. That's I'm I'm OK with that. Like, I don't feel like the type safety and I'm putting air quotes around that in Java got me very much at all because it was optional. <laughs> it does force you to think about your structure a little bit more, though. Right. This is true. Let's take just a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor. It's Thinkful. Thinkful provides online design and development classes that set apart from their competitors by their emphasis on -on one-on-one mentorship from experts. When you sign up for Thinkful, you'll be paired with an experienced engineer with whom you'll meet once a week as you learn to build a website or application with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery. Thinkful is a great fit for designers that want to bring their comps to life with code or beginners that want to become software engineers. They also have courses for more intermediate developers looking to pick up new tools and frameworks such as Rails, Angular, and Node. For 20% off your enrollment, visit thinkful.com slash bikeshed. That's T-H-I-N-K-F-U-L dot com slash bikeshed. Our thanks to Thinkful for supporting the show. I guess, like, so what what can we say? So (laughs) I'm not going to start writing... I'm not going to start writing Rust tomorrow or some other language tomorrow. I'm still going to be writing Ruby tomorrow. So what advice can we give people who are also writing languages that they feel aren't necessarily writing, helping them write like provably correct code, but they want to not make a mess of things? Like we've talked about our first episode with Sandy Metz's rules, right? Keeping things small. That's basically what that entire thing is about. What other advice can we give people? Be your own compiler. Yeah, it's really hard to do when, once you get past a certain size. It, it is, but it, ju- it helps just to be thinking about it. So, for example, one of the one of the talk proposals that I've submitted to a couple of conferences is about this bug that Sam Fippen and I ran into when we were um, updating our spec to support Rails five. And we made a change in action dispatch request in a method called path parameters, and the change was um, like from at env some key or equals empty hash to at env that same key or empty hash, and in our spec, they were mutating the empty hash case. But because that hash wasn't getting stored anywhere, that immediately got thrown away. And it was actually a really difficult bug to track down because all the, the visible side effects of this was the result of path parameters in a completely different part of the code was empty hash when we expected it to be not an empty hash. Right. And basically the talk is about 
Like in Rust, right, we have ownership semantics. And you would never be able to write that bug because the signature of that would be, it would take a mutable reference to self and return a mutable reference to a hash map. And because you've not said otherwise, right, the lifetime of the, the reference to the hash map has to be the lifetime of self. So you can't just like then say, okay, well, here's an empty hash out of thin air. I'm going to return that. Because if you just try and do that, you're returning a empty, you're returning a hash and not a reference to a hash. And you can't say, well, okay, I'll return a reference to this empty hash because the empty hash has to belong to somebody. In this case, it belongs to that function. So when the function returns, it goes away. Right. Right. So it becomes literally impossible to write that bug. And, and of course, um, having the compiler like actually just prevent that always is helpful. But you can you can prevent a lot of defects. I think it, uh, if you and, and the talk, a lot of it goes into the thought process behind that change on the rail side. And then like in a hypothetical world going through that same thing, but like remembering that ownership semantics exist and just having it in the back of our minds and going through that and then trying to see what the thought process might have looked like in that case and seeing how it would have led to a different outcome potentially. I feel like a lot of times I start thinking about a, like a compiler and I just say like if I were really going to think like a compiler, this would look like code that as a Ruby developer I would say is terrible. Like it would check the type of an object being passed in. It would check that the object responded. To, like, I would constantly be checking things or, or putting asserts in the code. Well, but again, you don't have to assert it in your code to be thinking about those things. You can absolutely be asking myself, what is the type um, of, uh, that I'm expecting here? Right, which what I do all the What are the methods time, right? I expect this to respond to? Right. Why do I expect it to respond to them? Like, you can be constantly thinking in terms of types without having those asserts. Sure. That's true. My advice would be to be incredibly, incredibly boring. Like, boring code that does not quite everything that you want it to do is probably the best way <laughs> to not make a mess and have correct software. Like continually saying no to new features, which as a developer, and you've got, you've got people who want to use the product in a certain way, like I guess making sure that the features you're being asked to, imp to implement are actually needed and aren't just like guesses at what people might want. Or if they are guesses, we're being upfront about, well, this is a guess and we're going to try this. And if nobody uses it, we're going to remove it or right. something like that. Just trying, like saying no, be boring, simplify, make tiny, tiny things. Because if you don't, you're like, I've seen the projects that happen down the line and it's, it's kind of unprofessional at this point. Like part of being a professional in this field is you're the one with the discipline, right? About what it takes like if we were building somebody's house and they asked for something totally unreasonable we'd be like well i can't i can't no i can't do that for you it would it violates these things i know to be true about building a house right so being able to kind of say the same thing about software know that you are the professional and you're speaking from that this this gets back to my story about the modem pool right like i should have i should have been knowing that i'm the professional and spoke from that position of like i'm the professional here my discipline tells me that this is the problem we need to solve this problem well, it's also when you add a new feature, it's not a linear, uh, in terms of your risk for bugs and your increase in, in complexity, it's not a linear function. It's not even an exponential function. It's a factorial function. Because ultimately, a, a bug can be introduced not just in a feature, but in that feature when it interacts with a different feature in a, in a specific way, which then ultimately leads to any combination of any number of features in any order can lead to a obscure bug that only happens for exactly that combination of things. And so it literally ends up being the number of features in your system factorial is the number of possibilities for bugs there. 
that number times the independent number like number of bugs that can potentially come out of each of those individual features. And this this that that touches on why I've started to become more sympathetic, I guess, to the management side of the whole. Um, and when I say management side, I'm just like stereotypically categorizing these things. The management side of the whole don't refactor argument, like developers will say, like my manager doesn't let me refactor, right? <laughs> like the idea that changing code introduces a factorial possibility of bugs, right? You should be wary about refactoring because, like, even with tests, like our tests aren't good enough, right? Unless you're testing every combination of of every usage of every feature in your system in every possible combination, right? But would I work on a project and never refactor? No, I'm going to continually refactor. I am a little more wary of it than I was maybe even a year ago. I'm a little more willing to let code that I don't like but is doing its job lie particularly if there's no major changes that need to be made to it because of this like there's even even if this code was test driven and has decent test coverage it was test driven for design and when we say that the tests are providing regression tests as well like that's true but not that wasn't the intent usually the tests were for design purposes or maybe a regression in a very specific case we don't have something like quick check to do our work for us we actually do we do yeah is it good I don't know. I've never tried it. <laughs> okay. We're going to link to that. So if you want to check out Quick Check for Ruby, uh, we'll link to it's that. It's not called notes. Quick Check. It's called some play on the word gener- generation or generative. I don't remember what the actual name of the library is. We'll find it. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Cool. So maybe we'll check that out. But anyway, that's just what's been on my mind lately as I see more. Like I'm kind of on a lull from rescue projects right now, but just reflecting on them and trying to come up with the common threads. It's not. It, it can't be that... The last four projects I've worked on have just been from unprofessional, like, hacks, for lack of a better word, right? I mean, I think we also do underestimate the number of people in this industry who don't care that much. And, like, for them, programming is their job. And they go do it. And as long as the software runs, the job is done. Right. For myself and my own career, there was, like, a period of... I kind of went through a period of like, I want to be the best programmer I can ever be. And then kind of like this period where like, ugh, I'm just getting paid to do this. And then I kind of reverted back to like, I want to be the best programmer I can ever be. And Ruby kind of helped me re-energize for that. But even when I was in that period of like, ugh, <laughs> I was never like, I don't know, it runs, it's fine, Garrett. You know? <laughs> you know, I was always trying to do at least a reasonable job, I guess. Right. But maybe there are, I, I constantly try and say out loud and to other people and to myself, like everybody's trying their best, but maybe that's not true. I mean, there's also the entire enterprise group, which I'm not saying everybody who works for enterprise is this way, but I think there a lot of the, the kinds of people who we talk about, you know, that mythical person who actually doesn't care who exists, like they actually do exist in, in swaths, but most of them, you're not going to hear about them because they're not going on podcasts or to conferences uh, and most of the time they're working for Oracle or BigSoft or, who, you know, whoever. Right. Where they can just sort of like fade into the, the crowd. That makes sense. The other thing I've been thinking about is does it matter as much as we like to think it does? Whether or not software has bugs? Yeah. Does, is, I think so. Or even does the quality, does the code even matter to these businesses? Like no. there's a certain level you have to get to. But does the software quality and the code quality and all that stuff, does it really matter? No. Like, in, in the strictest sense, no. Okay. 
there's tons of arguments for why it does and why like having good quality code is important for the longevity of your business. But at the end of the day, no. The software operating correctly and without defects is the single and only factor that ultimately leads to the immediate success or failure of a software product. Wait, so you're saying it does matter? I'm saying, wait, are you, when you say quality, are you talking about how well written the code is or whether or not it performs its, its function correctly? Both. I'm, I'm saying both. I'm saying both. I think at the end of the day, you can get you cannot get away with software that doesn't perform its function correctly, but you can get away with software that is correct but is not good code. I, f I feel like anecdotally, you can get away with software that's 80% correct or 90% correct. Well, it depends on what you're doing. Right. I mean, if, if you're if you're, you know, landing planes, hopefully that's not the case. I don't know. That system's probably a mess, but <laughs> I hope it's not 90% correct. I hope it's 100% correct. It, ca it can be subtler than that, though. I mean, in this day and age, even just accidentally leaking somebody's personal information in a poor way can p potentially destroy their lives or at the very least significantly harm somebody. Right. I'm, I was thinking more from a perspective of you are a developer at Big Corp or even a startup or whatever. And the business exists on this as this website, right? As a developer there, you like to think that like you wield the success of the company. Like if you build a good website, the company will do well. If you build a poor website, even if the company has a great idea, the company is going to do poorly. But there's exists this space in the middle, I feel like, where you can build a good enough website and your business is frankly going to get its advantages from somewhere else. Right. But, but, that, but that's website. the problem. Hmm. Like, yes. Okay. If you're saying, if you're saying like for the business to be successful, no, you do not have to have software that is strictly speaking correct. Mm -hmm. But that's part of the problem. I think like that shouldn't be the, the motivating factor for why we write good software. Right. It shouldn't be the motivating factor of why we write good software, but maybe it's why we're all just kind of still writing 80% correct software. <laughs> right. I, um, I, I mean, I guess I'm personally have never been motivated by like business needs as to the driving factor behind why I'm doing my software. Right. You're not, but the people who are running the business, like if it's going to cost them 50% more to get 10% better quality, are they going to do that? Well, I'm just not going to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've never right. had the, my manager won't let me refactor problem because I just go refactor for a week and not tell anybody. Right. I'm not tell. I just, yeah, this is part of me do it like that's my advice to people when they ask, like, if you are in a situation where you're like, my manager won't let me refactor and my manager won't let me do TDD, like, don't ask your manager. Just like... Yeah, I'm sorry, we have better software now. Are you going to fire me? Again, you are the professional. You know, it's his or her right to, like, make the feature requests or whatever and to have input into how you do your job. But ultimately, it's you doing your job. You need to do the job that you're comfortable with. Right. So, yeah, I just think that... I, it doesn't matter as much as I would like. Like, I would love to go into an engagement that had like this atrocious code, and then be and just be like, "Oh, this code is atrocious, and if you don't fix it, you're going to go out of business." And they go, "Okay, well, well, we'll make as many fixes as we can." And then they go out of business because they didn't they didn't listen and they didn't improve fast enough. But ultimately, that's not why they're going to go out of business. They're going to go out of business because they didn't have the right uh, partnerships with so and so or whatever the case may be. As long as the software is good enough, which I'm saying I'm fed up with making software that's good enough. Well, and, and to bring it back to that metaphor, right? Like if we ignore federal regulations and stuff like that, you could be building bridges and your bridges are mostly defect free as long as there's no catastrophic collapse that like kills tens of thousands of people or hundreds of people or however many people die if a bridge collapsed. I don't even know how big bridges are. <laughs> Depends on how big the bridge is, right? Yeah, well, I they guess had that so. bridge in Minnesota years ago that collapsed. 
Right, and as long as you don't have your bridge collapse like, and physically kill people, you probably will still be able to do all right as a business. That doesn't make it okay to build flawed bridges. Correct. And the other thing I would say is like, even from a, like getting back to the point I was trying to make where it's like not life, it's not a life and death kind of thing. I would say that the longer your business goes on, weighed down by this technical debt, like your idea for your business is just an idea and somebody else can have the same idea or take your idea or steal your idea and execute on it better. And right. one of the ways they can execute on it better is to look at everything you're doing. They don't have to go through the growing pains of how you built your software system, right? They can look at where it is today and be like, all right, I can build that and catch up to you. And if you want to help eliminate that avenue of being caught, right, having code that is nimble and can be changed easily is going to help you there. Now, it may be that, you know, the, the counter argument to that is the point I was just making is that you could give the code to somebody else and be like, here, you have the same website and they wouldn't be able to execute on it because there's other things that actually make the business go. Maybe it's a case by case kind of thing. You can also just be successful enough that you can throw enough money at the problem to make it kind of. You never really make it go away. You ultimately dig your hole deeper. But if you can just keep on getting exponentially more successful so you can throw exponentially more money at the problem. As long as you're taking money in faster than you're adding money to the bottom line or to right. the top line. I don't know which one of those it is. Some line. <laughs> it also just depends, too, on what you're doing because depending on on the type of project, like you can definitely argue that adding more developers to a company overall will increase the company's overall productivity. But generally on like an individual feature or project, adding more developers does not actually cause the code to or the, the product to be released faster. Yeah, I've definitely seen projects and not all of them, but I've seen projects where the team size is just too big. And the reason why it's so big is because they were responding to a slowdown, right? Like, oh, it's taking this one person. Now it's taking them three weeks to implement this feature. Well, I want five features. I need five people. Right. And A, that's not the way it works. Mythical Man Month, which we will link to in the show notes. And B, like, that's not listening to the problem. Or if it is, it's deciding to ignore the root cause of the problem. Right. So you don't think 1,500 developers are... We're not that many developers. We're like 700 developers. You don't think you don't think like 700 developers is a reasonable team size to work on a single monolith? <laughs> um, I don't. I don't know what Shopify's like. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> we have a lot of developers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of developers at Akamai too, but we had a lot of like. I mean, ultimately, the thing was kind of delivered as a monolith, but there were a lot of different teams working on things, and frankly, it was too big. Like. I think my friends that are there would tell you that like there are like larger companies tend to have more people on staff that frankly probably don't need to be there. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Because they can, like we talked about earlier, they can hide and nobody wants to fire anybody and you know, they can afford to make those mistakes whereas smaller companies cannot afford those mistakes or they go out of business. Right. There are places where you want more people though. Security right. stuff. You definitely want like just generally more eyes on security stuff. Right. Yes. That makes sense. And like, that's not to say that, you know, if Shopify does have 700 engineers that you only need a hundred of them and 600 of them to fire tomorrow. Like, I'm not <laughs> saying that, like maybe like, I'm not trying to point anything out in specific. No. And I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, like our, our, our teams are actually quite well managed. It was more just a joke when you were talking about <laughs> there are teams with too many engineers. I'm like, Hmm, I think this might be one of the largest teams that work on a single code base. That is really interesting. Like I bet you're up there with uh, like Facebook or whatever, which technically is from what I hear, one giant repository. Yeah, same with Google. Yeah, I've heard that about them as well. Like Maps and I think YouTube as well has been brought into the main code base and 
basically everything that isn't Android and Chrome is apparently in the same code base. Wow. Kind of makes sense. I don't know. We can talk about that some other time. <laughs> get back to service-oriented architectures. Get, get, get some Google guys on here. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, that's my, that's my uh, I guess we did make a pretty good topic out of that. Yeah. For the, like, so here's the conclusion, right? If you're listening to this podcast, you're part of the solution because you're trying to get better. Every, if you're not listening to this podcast and you're listening to some other podcast, then you're part of the problem. Yeah. Uh, people who are not <laughs> listening to this podcast are just the worst. I meant if you're doing things like going to conferences, you're doing things like reading programming books, checking out other programming languages, like you are the type of person who will do this type of thing. You're part of the solution. And just to be trying to think about this constantly and doing those like if you're writing Ruby code, trying to think like the compiler, like you said, or just like I said, being boring, as boring as you can possibly be, making tiny, tiny little objects, those types of things tend to help trying to get yourself onto a team with other like-minded people so that you're not cleaning up after people who don't think like you. Uh, that's also, that can go the wrong way. You don't want to exclude Sorry. all people who don't think like you. I didn't mean think like you. I meant appreciate quality are as professional. Sure. How about how's, how about are as professional as you? I think right? that's a good way to put it. Are approach their work with pride. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, um, and a big part of it, I think, is also just not accepting, like, meeting the minimum requirements for the software as enough making sure that you consider every edge case that it's rigorously tested that it's code that is well factored and maintainable that it's immediately clear to developers who know nothing about the feature that you just worked on what your code is doing that's one of the other ones that i, I, I see it gets a little bit too tricky as well is it, um code can start to assume way too much domain knowledge yeah that's true I've been on projects where you have to like learn you you spend your first three weeks learning like the terminology and how the business works and like trying to boil things down to patterns that exist in the industry and names that exist in the industry rather than too much domain specific stuff. Right. And like, I mean, of course, you need to have a rough understanding of what the business does, but you should be able to at least follow code without specifically knowing about that feature. Or you should be able to also understand why code was written a certain way without specifically knowing about that feature. All right, so everybody get on it. Make your uh, software 5% better this week. That's your homework. <laughs> also, open source can be a lot better. Pull request, welcome. Yes. Is that it? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 48. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.